Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. I'm your host, Matt Phelan. I am co-founder of a business called The Happiness Index and host um, of the Happiness and Humans community. And I am delighted to be here with Andy Britt, who I'm going to let introduce himself. Um, please introduce yourself, Andy. So, Matt, good to, good to see you, good to be with you. So, uh, yeah, my name is Andy Britt. I lead the Talent and Transformation consulting practice at IBM uh, in the UK, but I have a European role. Uh, IBM's talent and transformation practice helps our clients with anything to do with people and skills and human resources and learning. Andy, we were talking, um, we were sort of talking off air um, about IBM and what it is and what it stands for now. What, um, how, how would you describe the, the, the wider business to, to, to bring us all up to speed in 2021? Well, I sometimes describe IBM as a, as a hundred year old tech startup, because one of the things about IBM is that it's had to constantly reinvent itself over its 109 year history. Uh, currently, IBM's whole strategy and focus is helping our clients uh, implement new innovative technology, whether that's artificial intelligence, uh, blockchain, um, Internet of Things, or even start prepare for a world of, qu of, of uh, quantum computing. And of course, many of our clients are in that process of shifting everything they do to the cloud. And uh, that's what IBM does. We help them with that uh, enterprise technology transformation. Andy, how, how, how big do you think quantum computing is for, for, for us that are just starting to read about it? Is it like is it a small chain on a grand scheme of changes? How 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 big is is, is quantum computing going to be on the world? Yeah, I mean, it is going to be the next big shift. It's a little bit like you asking me thirty years ago and saying, "Andy, how? What do you think these mobile phones? How big do you think they are going to be? You know, in the workspace? Do you ever think we're going to use them in our personal lives?" <laughs> So yeah. it's better. It's better to assume that this is going to be a dominant technology that's not just going to transform, you know, the uh, enterprise space, but it's going to transform, transform government and it will transform our lives as uh, as individuals, as consumers. Yeah, no, it's good. so good, good to hear it in those terms, Annie. But, and, and before we get into the real core of the discussion, I need to ask you, what, what makes you happy? <laughs> what a brilliant question. Well, I could riff on this for, for a long time, Matt. I, I'm going to sum it up in one word and then I'm going to expand it out. I'm going to double click. Um, oh, I think yes. the heart of happiness would be the word relationship. Mm. So what makes me happy is the quality of relationships that I enjoy, obviously, first and foremost, with my wife, uh, with my kids, with my family. But then with my colleagues at work, the fact that yeah. I can, you know, ha have, you know, inspiring, constructive, creative relationships um, at work is really important to me. And I could be working on the most difficult client, on the most troubled project, um, or, you know, on the most difficult engagement. But if I sense I've got a good team around me, we have good working relationship, then that is what gives me kind of like happiness. I then I think would expand it even further and perhaps... I might be controversial here, but I also think it's about your relationship with your maker, with God. Now, you probably don't have God introduced into this into this podcast, but I think it's it's the kind of 360 relationship that we get to enjoy with our family, with our colleagues, with our friends and ultimately with our divine maker. They are controversial start to the podcast. 
Well, I think there's there's some really related subjects here, um, Andy, because um, I just finished a book called Freedom to Be Happy. Um, and in the last chapter, we talk about, um, so you, your first point, um, it, across 93 countries, and this is why I prefer happiness as a term to engagement, because engagement is a very Western term. Happiness we see in every country universally. And relationships across 93 uh, countries is the main theme at work. Um, and what's really interesting is, um, which links to quantum computing, we're creating an, a, a new model called quantum working. Um, and what we found, um, and I'll just I'll just go with spirituality for a moment, um, is that a lot of the things that we see in science, magic, religion, spiritualism, and so on and so on, are starting to become more connected. Um, so I'm, I'm not qualified to go any deeper than that, but probably the best example I would use is you know when people talk about someone has a soul or a um uh, an aura or and, and people use it in different languages they've 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 found um using like body scanners that um that the heart emits an electromagnetic field about 1.5 meters out so nobody knows really what that means or how that comes but but what we are writing at the moment is a convergence of a lot of these things that people found to be totally opposing to come back together. So I think you're, both your points are beautiful, Andy. So, and it's lovely. <laughs> it's lovely to hear. Um, That's great to hear, Matt. Um, so, so but so actually super interesting to us. Um, this really relates to what you just talked about, and we we put it in just before the call. But I read a beautiful quote the other day that. We live in a society, not an economy. Um, we were talking about how coronavirus hasn't necessarily impacted people equally. Um, could you just give us a couple of your thoughts on that on that point, Andy? Yeah, and I think we're going to be examining this issue, Matt, in the years to come, is that the pandemic, certainly if we look at our society here in the UK, you maybe have people you know listening to your podcast from around the world they may see similar things but certainly as far as the uk is concerned the pandemic seems to have a you know a disproportionately harmful and detrimental effect on some of the lowest paid workers in our uh, in our economy i'll start with that word uh, and yet we are discovering that some of the most important people certainly to help us get through uh, this, uh, this this pandemic are you know the nurses um, you know the healthcare workers, uh, the you know the, the you know the care providers, um, yeah, the you know people who work in you know in, um, in our transport systems, our, our cleaners, and these generally are very low-paid workers, and yet they are providing such an essential um, kind of service to the whole of society. So if we think about just the economy, we're seeing a very narrow view of the contribution that people make because the people that have proved to be most valuable are those low paid workers. And unfortunately, what we're now seeing, and I've mentioned before, I helped run a food bank here in Wandsworth in southwest London. It's, it's a network actually of six food banks in, in our area. We have seen a massive increase in, in, in demand for food bank uh, you know, services. Um, and you know we've got people who are employed, who are you know are in work poverty, um, and are having to use the food food bank. So I'm hoping that out of this pandemic, we're going to look hard again 
at some things like you know basic minimum living wage. I'm hoping that we're going to look at the safety net that we need, um, whether that's through universal credit or or any other mechanism, because you know the people who you know who desperately you know need that support are often those same people we rely on to get to work or to care for us in our old age. And you know, I said I'm like a selfish podcast host, so I ask all the questions I want answered. I'm going to chuck another big one at you, which frustrates me, which is a conversation like this often becomes political. So for me, that, that's, that's, this is a human conversation about looking after other human beings. It's not whether you vote Labour or Conservative or, or whatever. How do, we make, how do we make this conversation about humans, not about where you sit on the political spectrum? Mm, that's a really that's a really good point uh one of my favorite books that i read early on my career is called the um, road less traveled and it begins with a simple quote which is um which is um um actually sorry i've got the wrong book <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to say that again one of the other favorite books that i have read is called the purpose driven life uh, it's got by a guy called Rick Warren, and it begins with this statement, which is, it's not about you. It's not about you. And I sometimes wonder if actually as a society, uh, and indeed or as a community or in the workplace, we would all get a lot, uh, we would all get along a lot better if we started with that assumption that actually the life we live is not primarily about us. And it comes back to the first point about relationship. It's about what you're giving and doing for others. You probably heard that other quote. There's, you know, there's the, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, the two most important dates in your life are the day you were born and the day that you work out why. And yeah. I think if we can get people to realize that their life is so much bound up in the lives of others, then regardless of whether you're left or right on the political spectrum, your whole emphasis will be actually, how can I ensure the good of the whole, not the good of me? And an interesting thing, um, it was an IBMer, Gert Hofstadt, who actually did the first work on organisational cultures across countries and comparing you know, the cultures in you know, South America versus Europe versus Asia Pacific. And he identified that some cultures like in the UK and in the US is a very me-centric, I-centered um, culture, whereas other cultures in South America and in Asia Pac, Asia Pac are much more we-centered. They think about us, they think about the community and less about the individual. No, that's really that's really good, Andy. We've got um we've got a pitch invader here from Freddie. Um, <laughs> the next, no, and then I'm going to mute myself while I put a TV program on for him while I listen to you. Is <laughs> um, is it possible to have a thriving culture in a large company like IBM? Uh, that's again really good question. So at IBM, we've got um, over three hundred and fifty thousand staff across over one hundred and eighty or so countries. So my immediate answer to that question is, yes, of course, it's possible to have diversity. One, because of the inherent diversity of uh, you know, 180 plus countries that are, that are reflected in, in our organization. But I also think it's, it's, it's possible because we have such a, um, such a culture of innovation. Um, so in an organization this, this large, 
there are so many different avenues to pursue, so many different levels of expertise that, uh, that, that we have. So, for example, on the same day at IBM, I could be talking to someone who's investigating, you know, quantum computing. I could be talking to someone who's an expert in uh, using AI for agricultural uh, yields in the, in the farming industry. I could be talking to another person whose passion is the security of your personal data and making sure that your bank account doesn't get hacked. Or I can be talking to someone in our healthcare sector who is using Watson AI to help, you know, discover the next vaccine that's going to uh, protect that's us not, from, yeah, I mean, from, from, from the pandemic. Amazing to have access to those people, isn't it? And it's that diversity of culture, that diversity of expertise that I think means that, you know, every day when you come to work, there's something new to learn uh, and there's someone new to learn from. No, Andy, that's an amazing answer. And I'm just looking for a blue Power Ranger as I ask you the next question, <laughs> which, is, which is probably going to take me the rest of the podcast to find, but it's going to keep keep this going. Um, the next question is a feel question because I, I love, because we work in data all the time, but how you feel, it's like that saying, is it? You don't remember what people said, but you know how they made you feel. What, what does, the reason I became aware of you is, it, you were talking about employee experience, but but what does good employee experience feel like? Can, can you describe mm. it to us? Mm, mm, mm. Well, in one sense, it's quite simple. You know, I think great employee experience is think of the best app that you have on your smartphone. You know, for me, it might be something like um, um, it might be like my uh, uh, you know. Google Maps on my mobile phone that allows me to find something really quickly. Um, it might be like Strava that allows me to go for a run or a cycle ride and track all my stats. And just think about that great experience, how easy it is to use, and the fact that you can just do it on your mobile mobile phone with uh, swipe left or swipe right and tapping in some data. That's what great employee experience should be like. You know, you want your interactions with your employer at work, whether you're joining a company or whether you're um, you're doing your performance appraisal or whether you're wanting to find out what your salary is or whether you want to book a holiday. Um, if you can do that simply, intuitively and quickly just on your mobile phone, then that for me is great employee experience. I love that. Andy, for most of us, our introduction into AI is uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. <laughs> um, but what, what, what I want to ask you, Andy, is can AI and humans exist together um, or are we on the road to Judgment Day? Well, Matt, that's a really good question. And have you noticed, actually, all the AI um, kind of science fiction films like, uh, uh, you know, like Terminator follow exactly the same plot? I mean, you know, think about, uh, you know, Blade Runner or 2001 A Space Odyssey, or iRobot, or Ex Machina, they more or less have exactly the same plot. You know, man invents AI as the answer to, you know, kind of all, all, all the world's problems. Um, initially, looks like a great solution, then goes wrong and starts to, uh, starts to de destroy mankind. You know, until Hero comes along and destroys the AI. Um, actually, The Matrix, that's exactly the same plot there. Um, and therefore, quite perhaps naturally, we all have a, you know, a good 
a healthy skepticism and concern about how AI might gradually take over, not just in terms of, you know, taking over people's jobs, but I, I but I ultimately have more kind of sinister kind of ends. So I, I understand the concern. I think the trick to understanding AI is to realize how AI and humans can work together. There are some things that AI does really, really well. And, uh, and there are some things that humans are always going to be better at doing. So for example, AI is very good at analyzing vast volumes of data, you know, complex um, data sets, and then analyzing it, making a recommendation or coming up with a key trend, drawing out some analysis from that data and doing that rapidly. That's what AI is really good at. Humans, of course, are much better at empathy, at understanding, at showing sympathy. Humans are much better generally at creativity, coming up with kind of fresh or innovative ideas. So if you can put us together, our relative strengths, then just think how powerful we could be. Um, we often talk about, you know, uh, you know, AI can make us superhuman in the sense that it can give us instant, you know, uh, insight, um, you know, answers in the palm of our hand via mobile phone. And then we make, you know, we make the decision. So AI should be there to guide us, not necessarily to direct what we do. I love that, Andy. I went, um, I went to an event called Human in Copenhagen before the lockdown. And there was a Cambridge University professor there, and he he believed that science fiction was one of the most important subjects in the world. Um, and his his point was that it helps us explore potential futures to have these conversations in a safe environment, um, which which is what we're doing now. So I suppose we're we're fulfilling his prophecy of having of having. Yeah, the, and it was. Yeah, and it was it was Stephen it was yeah it was Stephen Hawking, wasn't it, who said of AI. You know, AI could be the best thing that ever happened to humanity or the worst thing. And, yeah. you know, we've got choices. We need to design AI and indeed all technology. So it's designed for human flourishing, not human suffering. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes that when we have conversations about AI and, and bias and stuff like that, I think sometimes we take it from a, an assumption that humans are perfect and don't have biases ourselves. Because yeah. suddenly you get, oh, well, this AI has got this bias and that bias. Well, it's like every single human being has a bias in us. Um, yes, yes. And there's probably evolutionary reasons for that. Um, but Andy, um, that's such a wonderful subject, which we still actually do a whole podcast on that, shouldn't we? <laughs> but, um, how are HR leaders writing the rules of, of work in this pandemic? Yeah, well, HR leaders have had to think on their feet over the last year or so. And it, in one sense, it's been interesting to see how, you know, if, there's, if a pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that businesses are all about people. And whether it's about their health and well-being, or it's about, you know, where they're going to work, or whether it's about, you know, policies that are going to work when people are um, operating remotely, you know, HR has been thrust right into the centre of the boardroom, um, you know, discussion. Um, so how are HR leaders responding or what are they learning? Well, first and foremost, it's great. I think HR leaders are reminding that the exec board and the organisation that what we need more than anything at this, this stage is empathy and understanding. 
um, you know, given all of the stress that's on our workforces globally, you need HR leaders to say, right, we need to get alongside and help them um, and, uh, and, and make sure that our policies and our processes are there to support individuals at what is the most stressful time of their lives. We did a survey um, uh, about a year ago, just when the pet pandemic was, was kicking off. And 69% of employees said this is the most stressful time they've ever experienced in their working life. So that's the first thing, um, you know, HR leaders need to sort of demonstrate and drive empathy as a leadership behavior across the organization. Second thing is around flexibility in your, uh, in, in, in your policies. Um, I was called up by the Financial Times uh, fairly soon after most companies uh, sent their employees home during, during the lockdown. And yeah. the question the reporter asked me was, how do you make sure that your employees are actually working when they're at home? Sad, isn't when, it? I re- <laughs> when I reflected on it, I thought that is such a sad um, yeah. kind of question because it assumes that you don't trust your people yeah. whereas uh, you know whereas our culture at IBM and in many companies is you trust your employees to get on with the job that they've got to do and you're not trying to track them or monitor how they're doing so flexibility in policy policies so allow people to work when it when when it suits them or allow people if they need a morning off to homeschool their kids then they do that and then they can get back to work in the evening allow them to dictate their own uh, working working patterns and then the third thing is i think uh, hr leaders can help the board to listen to their workforce and by which i mean um, none of us know how to get through this uh, this 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 difficult um kind of phase we're all trying to work out you know what our future hr policies are going to be and the only way we're going to get through this i think is by you know sounding out our employees giving them some options and listening to what our employees are saying yeah no Andy, that's so useful and the, i mean this is the, this is the big one like, i've not given you some easy questions here but uh, what will work look like after the pandemic well so i think a couple of things first of all um virtual working is here to stay you know we have all learned that virtual uh, learning virtual meetings virtual creative sessions is is possible and all of those kind of beliefs that we had about, you know, you can't onboard people virtually or you have to be in the room to kind of close the deal. You've, ha- you've got to press the flesh. You've got to yeah. shake hands. You've got to see the white. All of those, as it were, myths, I think, have been challenged. And you yeah. can do those things um, um, uh, virtually and online. So I think work will change because we will go back into the office when we need to. When there are specific tasks where we need to get people together now of course i realize it depends upon the industry you're in many businesses like the hospitality industry the travel and transport they're dependent on people being there um you know actually in situ but for many organizations you can do what you've been doing in the office you can do it remotely therefore i think there's going to be a big shift people are going to be working uh, more from home they'll be coming into the office when they've got a specific team-based task to to do so that's the first thing the second thing is we're all become more skilled in being creative um, and taking decisions and running projects virtually i think we'll all gradually get used to using all of these tools not just the simple ones like uh you know uh, you know um you know virtual meeting sites like like this but we'll be better at using creative tools that allow you to do virtual whiteboarding 
um yeah. and uh, and and uh, you know and, and and running you know running video sessions where you have people contributing using uh, using polling getting people to contribute um in actually in the virtual session so that's the skill that i think collectively we'll all develop Addy, i mean there's so much in here that i just want to go into in more detail but i just want to go into a summary on something that you said at the beginning and try and bring some points together here okay so one of the things that, that we know at the Happiness Index, we, we call it freedom to be human. And what we found is the more someone can be themselves at work, um, the better they perform. So at the beginning, you mentioned you mentioned your faith in what makes you happy. So yeah. how, how do companies allow a really especially a company like IBM, which is so many people, so diverse, so many different beliefs and backgrounds. How, how does a company allow Andy to bring his faith to work, someone who, who might be an atheist through to someone who's a vegan or someone who likes eating meat every, in every meal? How, um, how can a, a, a someone like IBM allow someone like Andy um, to thrive and then someone who is totally different, but... But under uh, on a on a level, you're you're good human beings, and and you want to work on these amazing projects that you've outlined. How can how can you create a culture that allows that to happen, Andy? Well, first of all, it's one of our stated values, you know, trust, you know, and respect in all relationships. So that's the that's the foundational, um, you know, value and principle that we have in IBM is that we trust and we respect one another, regardless of our. Uh, belief, our background, our gender, our, our sexuality. So that's the first principle. The second principle is we say to all of our employees, we want you to bring your whole self to work. That's all of you. Uh, that's your, your, it's your creativity. That's your character. Uh, again, that's, that, that's your history. We want you to bring who you are and bring the best of who you are uh, and, and not have to hide whether that is your, uh, you, you, you know your sexuality or, or or any disability we want people to be to, to to be to be open about it and then thirdly we create community groups so we create groups where people that let's say are lgbtqi or uh, who are from the bain uh, community or from a uh, uh, you know from a uh, you know you know people with disabilities can get together in a community not just for them but they can use it as a form to educate uh, and inform people across uh, ibm so that that as it were network group or community group comes a, becomes a means of raising the awareness and education levels of those issues across the whole ibm corporation and that is tremendously helpful because you know you learn by putting yourself in the shoes of someone else and that's what these community groups can do wow andy i have i've learned so much from from this 20 odd minutes i think what you've managed to do is go talk about really big visionary stuff and also give myself and the listeners some real practical advices there um advices advice so um andy i just wanted to, to finish up by saying thank you for giving you this this time at the end of what i know has been a really busy day for you so just want to say but thank you matt it's been great to be on uh, the podcast today thanks for some brilliant questions again i hope it inspires uh people's thinking thank you andy Take care. Yeah, bye.